0: What is karma? Is it an invisible force, an inescapable stalker, controlling your future, or is it a doctrinal delusion? Could it be the same as the law of sowing and reaping in biblical Christianity? Find out the answer to these questions and much more on this episode
1: of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world— How are they similar, and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now. Here's Mike Shreve, Revealing the True Light. Welcome to Revealing
0: the True Light. On this episode, we're going to be focused on a very, very important subject. The title of it is this, The Law of Karma in Hinduism and the Law of Sowing and Reaping in Christianity. Are they the same? Let me say right from the beginning, there are definitely similarities between the two concepts, but they are not the same, and I intend to prove that statement. First, let me mention that in the very beginning, when I was first introduced to biblical truth, I was a yoga teacher at four universities. I was running a yoga ashram, And one of the most difficult things for me to veer away from was the belief in reincarnation and karma. In fact, I told the man who witnessed to me about the Lord Jesus Christ that that was one thing I would never quit believing, that even if I embraced Christianity, I would never give up my belief in reincarnation and karma. And so I understand how entrenched you can get in that mindset. But I believe I'm going to share some very logical ideas and concepts with you that dismantle some of the beliefs you may hold to. I don't know what your worldview is. You may be of a biblical worldview. You may be of a Hindu worldview. Regardless, let's inspect these ideas with critical thinking and come out with a decision and a resolution concerning what is correct all right? What is the law of karma? I've heard it said that the law of karma is the spiritual equivalent of Newton's law of motion. Now, what was that? That for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. However, that comparison can't really be correct because in the idea of karma, it's not an opposite reaction it is exactly the same. What you do is what comes back to you, exactly the same. The law of karma is the belief that every thought, every attitude, every word, every action in our lives has an equal and inevitable response that either a deity oversees or the universe effects, according to the worldview a person holds to, and it will inevitably return to us. This is an automatic mechanism that has been set in place, sometimes with divine oversight. The guru I studied under in 1970 embraced concepts from both Hinduism and Sikhism, and he said this. He said, there are no accidents. There are no accidents. Anything that comes to you, You have put out beams for it. Ponder that for a little while. In most worldviews, and this is a very important point, good karma cannot cancel out bad karma. The doctrine of karma also cannot exist without the belief in reincarnation. And so, if i resolve this statement that i've made at the beginning that i no longer believe in uh, karma and i have logical reasons that i don't then if karma goes out the window reincarnation goes out the window they coexist but because of that connection the object of life according to a far eastern or a new age worldview the object of life is to walk in total perfection in your thoughts in your attitudes, in your words, and in your actions. And once you achieve that, once you manifest such perfect character, perfect righteousness, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect devotion to right principles, then and only then can you be delivered from the cycle of rebirth and go on to evolve on higher planes of existence. That's the generally accepted idea in many Far Eastern worldviews, and also among most New Agers. So the law of karma is foundational. It's foundational to those worldviews. In Hindu terminology, final deliverance from the karmic debt is called moksha. That's M-O-K-S-H-A. And that means liberation from the cycle of rebirth, which is called samsara. And as long as you have negative karma, you are caught in this cycle of rebirth. And sometimes negative karma can be the result of positive karma, because you can do something good and then get proud about it, or do it for selfish motives, and the positive becomes a negative that you have to reap. Now, this idea with slight variations is found in most Eastern religions that I know of. Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Taoism, they all have a concept of karma. In Buddhism, it's called Kama, K-A-M-M-A. And it's also overflowed into New Age spirituality, which is an outgrowth of Eastern religions, for the most part. Now, I'm going to give you 15 reasons, and I hope I can do it in a very succinct way. My wife on the other side of the camera is laughing right now at the idea of me being succinct about anything I share, but I will attempt to do so. 15 reasons I feel the idea of karma is illogical, unprovable, and discardable as a result. Number one, usually there is no recollection of former lives where negative karma has been affected or where it began. And so the law of karma is supposed to be about the passage of a soul from one incarnation to the next, but you should be able to learn from your past mistakes. And if there's no recollection of what caused the karmic debt and what caused the negative thing to result, then how can you learn from it? How can you identify it ahead of time and somehow make amends for it or take a different direction in your life to avoid any repetition of that? And even after it happens, you have no idea what happened in a previous life to make that come to pass. So, that in itself makes the concept somewhat illogical. Number two, I believe the idea of karma is unjust. Unjust. Now, 51 years ago, back when I was involved in New Age thought and embraced Far Eastern religions, I thought it it helped preserve the integrity of God, and it helped give the disorder and the chaos in this world some kind of just divine order underlying all things. And so, I felt it was a way of dealing with the inequities of life because I would say, how can God be a God of love if he allows all these evil things to happen like murder and theft and rape and sickness uh, in childhood or or even uh, prior to birth when a child is stillborn? born. Oh, What caused that? Why did it never have a chance at life? It seemed to give a logical reason why these unpredictable things happen, these random evil things take place. It's all karma. It's coming back to me. I deserve it, would be the logical way of looking at it. However, and these are some extreme examples, if that's true, then the rape victim is no longer a victim, but a guilty party. The person who is raped is raped because quite possibly in a previous life, he or she raped someone else, and so they're paying off their karmic debt. And the innocent child with a life-threatening disease is no longer innocent. Because that disease is the result of some former ill deed in a previous life. And so, it was inevitable. It had to happen. The price had to be paid. So again, it's unjust. It's unjust because it pins the blame on those who are victims of circumstances and should create a tremendous amount of depression as a result. Okay, number three, it is unfair to the highest degree. Let me say that again. Not only is it unjust, it is unfair to the highest degree. Why do I say that? Because you are suffering for the ill deeds or negative thoughts or actions or attitudes of a previous person. Uh, not you're not suffering for your own ill deeds you're suffering for someone else's because it's a different incarnation now in hinduism it teaches that you have a soul that passes from one incarnation to the next with this load this overload of accumulated negative karma and positive karma that dictates the events of a person's life in the future so it's somewhat connected to fatalism you can't get away from it But in Buddhism, the negativity of it and the unfairness of it even increases, because in Buddhism, there is a belief called no-self, anatta, uh, A-N-A-T-T-A, anatta. And that means no soul, because in Buddhism, there is a belief that you do not have a soul. And what passes from one incarnation to the next is not a soul, not a personal soul uh, that is called a jiva in Hinduism, but rather something called an unconscious disposition. There's five skandhas that disassemble at death, and so there's no identifiable soul or person that passes from one incarnation to the next. So, in Buddhism, you are absolutely suffering for things that somebody else did. It was not you, because there's no self that passes from one incarnation to the next. That's unjust. That's unfair. Now, number four, my fourth reason for not believing in karma is the origination of the process go ahead and, and, and hit the button called Rewind, and rewind all the way back to the beginning of the journey of a soul in Hinduism or an unconscious disposition in Buddhism, and negativity starts happening from one incarnation to the next. Well, if that soul or that unconscious disposition is perfect to begin with, and it is, then how come negative things happen in the next incarnation? If that original entrance of that being into this world is saturated with perfection, then how did anything negative ever result from that? For instance, to go back to the idea of rape, if you have someone who lives a perfect life to begin with or has a perfect slate to begin with, Why would something that horrendous happen in a following life? The origination of the process. All right, number five, and this is a real thing to ponder. This is a heavy, heavy thing to ponder. What about those persons used to execute the negative karmic debt? What about it? What about those who say, for instance, if I steal something from someone else. Let's bump it up more than one time. Let's say I rob a hundred people during this life. Then in the next life, I have to be robbed a hundred times, or in future lives, I have to be robbed a hundred times. What about those who robbed me? Were they unwilling robotic prisoners of a karmic process that forced them to be a part of this drama? Or did somehow this karmic design sift through all the events of my life and somehow find those who were inclined toward robbing me to begin with, and if they did rob me to begin with, why were they motivated that way? Was that stemming from something in their past? So, it gets very confusing, but my main question is, those who are used to execute the karmic debt in your life being paid, they rob you or murder you or what have you, then did they do that against their will? Or were they forced to do that? Or did the karmic process somehow find those who were willing to do that? And doesn't that get very confusing? And then number six, my sixth reason for not believing in karma, is the exponential overload. Let me go back to the example I just gave a moment ago. If I rob a hundred people in this life, that means in future lives I have to be robbed a hundred times, but all those who rob me have to be robbed, and all those who rob those who rob me have to be robbed, and it starts increasing exponentially to an unsolvable condition. There's no final resolution to it because in paying off my karmic debt, somebody else acquires karmic debt. And the list goes on and on and on. It's unsolvable. It's impossible. All right, number seven, some karmic payoffs, some karmic predictions in Hinduism are evidently extreme. And I would say, even if I believed in reincarnation and karma, unbelievable. Let me read to you out of the Garuda Purana, which is revered scripture to a Hindu, maybe not absolutely inspired like the Vedas, but at least respected as a source of truth. Listen to the outline of negative happenings that come to a person who sows something that is negative karma. All right. The murderer of a Brahmin. And by the way, this is out of my book, In Search of the True Light, where I go very, very extensively into these subjects. I urge you to go to our websites and purchase your copy on thetruelight.net. 336 pages comparing over 20 religions, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sikhism, and Christianity. All right. The murderer of a Brahmin becomes consumptive. The killer of a cow becomes humpbacked and imbecile. With as many hamburger-eating people as there are now, there should be a lot of humpbacked and imbecile people. The murderer of a virgin becomes leprous. All three are born as outcasts, which means uh, the caste system in Hinduism is true, which uh, even Gandhi rejected. All right, the slayer of a woman and the destroyer of embryos, the destroyer of embryos becomes a savage full of diseases, who commits illicit intercourse, becomes a eunuch, who goes with his father's, his teacher's wife, becomes diseased skin. The eater of flesh becomes very red. The drinker of intoxicants, one with discolored teeth. Well, that's just an automatic outcome. The one who steals food becomes a rat, The one who steals grain becomes a locust. The one who steals honey, a gadfly. The one who steals flesh, a vulture. And the one who steals salt becomes an ant. Who commits unnatural vice becomes a village pig. And it goes on and on and on. So if someone lives a good life their entire life, but as a child that person is impoverished and happens to steal salt one time, Then the good is not count, the bad is not counteracted by the good. And because of stealing salt one time, that person has to be reincarnated as an ant. Of course, not everyone who believes in reincarnation believes that you can shuttle back and forth from human to animal. Many people who believe in reincarnation believe it's always progressive as you evolve. And that, again, is uh, irreconcilable, the difference between the two outlooks. Okay, those are pretty extreme outcomes and cause for me to question the whole idea. Number eight, believing in the law of karma sometimes can cause indifference and even inhumane treatment of those who are suffering. Why would that be? Because The law of karma shifts the responsibility for evil, hurtful, or negative things to those human beings themselves who are hurting, who are suffering because of negative circumstances. The starving person is getting what he deserves. The victim of war, laying there with wounds, is really just suffering for something he or she did in a past life. It's part of the process, so don't interfere. You may stop. The karmic debt from being paid off. So, that cancels out compassion. Now, I know there's a lot of people who believe in karma who are also compassionate, and so I'm not discarding that, but I am saying it would have that negative effect on the cultivating of a compassionate heart. Number nine, the concept of karma and the Hindu belief in repetitious cycles seem to contradict one another. The, the karmic belief and the Hindu belief in repetitious cycles seem to contradict one another. What am I talking about? Well, all Eastern religions believe in cycles, repetitive cycles, that never bring the universe to a final, conclusive end. In Christianity, we have a final, conclusive end. That's why it's not cyclical, it's linear, We have the coming of Jesus. We have the ultimate new creation where there's a new heaven and a new earth and all this negativity and evil is finally resolved. It's done away with, but not so in Hinduism. Let me read to you out of the True Light book again. All right, here we go. How could a perfect age, which is called the Krita Yuga, Y-U-G-A. Y-U-G-A means age. All right, how could the Krita Yuga, which is perfect, everything's absolutely like paradise, in which the Dharma, which is a word for moral order, is completely manifested in the human race, how could that ever degenerate into anything less? There would be only positive karma being sown. Likewise, It is taught that we are presently in an extreme corrupt age called the Kali Yuga, and it's got an overload of negative karma. Well, how can that ever be paid off then? And how can the universe be birthed again into a new age that is perfect, another Krita Yuga? So it seems like the whole idea of karma and cyclical ages in Hinduism are grating against each other. There's no way for both ideas to coexist. Okay? Next, number nine, the whole idea of karma associated with reincarnation is salvation by works. You are working your way into a state of perfection so that you can be released from the cycle of rebirths. That becomes your passionate purpose in life. You are driven to arrive at this status of perfection, and I've never met anyone who got there. In fact, most of the gurus that I revered at one time in my life over 50 years ago have since had all kinds of scandals come out on them. Dishonesty in business practices, immorality, cultic-like control of their followers. I've never found anybody, no matter how spiritually evolved they are, that you could say that one's reached perfection or is close to it. I'm still striving because Jesus did say be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect, but our striving for perfection is an act of worship, not an attempt to earn salvation. Because see, in Christianity, it says, Ephesians 2.8, by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You don't earn it by canceling out Uh, all your negative karma by paying off your karmic debt. You repent of your sins. You receive Jesus as Lord of your life. Your sins are washed away. God cancels out many of the consequences of your sin. Ultimately, he definitely cancels out the eternal death that should result from the consequence of the evil deeds that have been in your life and removes the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve because Jesus bore that judgment on the cross. See, it's a completely different perspective. That's why people who say all religions basically say the same thing, don't really know comparative religion. They don't really understand the differences between these different worldviews. Also, number 11, the concept of karma. If you embrace it, if you uphold it, if you say that's the truth, it leaves no room for forgiveness coming from God. God can't intervene and say, I forgive you of that misdeed. And the Bible says at that point you are justified, which means to be legally acquitted of all guilt, just as if you never sinned. Where did karma go? Out the window, because The Bible concept of God personally coming to you and making the decision in a response to your humility and your repentance, washing your sins away, that just doesn't happen. It's a mechanism. It's a mechanical process set in motion. Hindus say by Brahman, which is an impersonal life force, the oversoul, and Buddhists say it's just the law of cause and effect. Uh, but it's something installed in the universe. That doesn't leave room for a personal God to come and say, I love you. I forgive you. I give you a new beginning. Okay. So that really ties in with number 12. And that is the idea that karma is a mechanical process that omits miraculous divine intervention from the development of a life. Because then why would God miraculously heal you if your sickness is a consequence of your sin? See, even the disciples were struggling with that idea because at the time Israel was positioned where there was a lot of merchant activity from the east going through the Middle East down into Africa and back and forth and. So they would become acquainted with the idea of reincarnation and karma, and that's why they asked Jesus when they found a blind man, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So they were referencing the idea that maybe he was suffering because of something that was done in a previous life and Jesus said neither is this man sin nor his parents but that the works of God should be manifested in him so Jesus cancelled out the whole idea of karma right there with that statement so the idea of karma the concept of karma cancels out the opportunity for miraculous divine intervention unless it's deserved because of some previous positive karma and then it gets very confusing. How can you believe for it if you don't know whether or not you deserve it, right? But we have promises in the Bible that teach us we deserve it. Now, in some religions, this karmic process is overseen on a personal uh, level with a personal deity. For instance, in Taoism, which is ancient Chinese religion, you can find this, that karma is an important concept in Taoism. Every deed is tracked by deities and spirits, and appropriate rewards or retribution follow karma, just like a shadow follows a person. That's a teaching from Taoism. Number 13, the law of karma disregards the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus as pivotal spiritual events. That's the key to salvation, according to Christianity. That really has nothing to do with salvation, according to Hinduism or Buddhism. So those are marginalized. Those events that I believe are the pivotal events on which the whole human race turns are instead reduced to almost unimportant events. The crucifixion of Jesus. Next, number 14, Hinduism allows certain things that can wipe out karma. Like, Washing in the river Ganges can wipe out all your negative karma. Well, if Jesus was an enlightened master, like many New Agers teach, he would have understood that Hinduism had certain provisions like meditating in a certain way. Or in Sikhism, they say if you meditate on uh, one of the leaders of the Sikh religion, one of the gurus, I think it was the fourth guru, then you could cancel out all your negative karma. Well, Jesus would have known that options like that existed and never would have gone to the cross as a result to pay the sin debt of the human race. Okay, number 15. The Bible teaches that there is just one life. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man once to die, but after this the judgment. So the Bible clearly says this one life is exceptionally important Because sometimes when you believe in karma and reincarnation, you think, well, if I blow it this life, I can kind of work it out in succeeding lives. The Bible puts a whole lot more importance on this life because you've got to get this life right. You can't blow it this time and make up for it the next time. Now, what is the biblical law of sowing and reaping? I'm not going to have much time to go into this because I want to pull this all together. But you find it in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Let me read from the Word of God. Let him who is taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. In other words, if someone's teaching you the Word of God, you should bless them back by supporting them in some kind of tangible way. Let him who is taught in the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So originally it was talking about the fact if you give generously to someone who blesses your life with correct teaching, then God is not mocked. What does that mean? It means your own mind may say, well, I'm wasting my money or I shouldn't do this. I need this myself. But God is not mocked. God is not mock what you sow you will reap he will reward you he will bless you back that's the concept being conveyed by this passage and then it goes on to say in verse 8 and of course it broadens the meaning for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption but he who sows to the spirit capital letter S the things of God initiated in this world by the spirit of God he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So, in other words, it's saying if you live a carnal life bound to the lower nature, indulging in passions and lusts, then you're going to reap corruption. You've lived in a corrupt way. Your life will end in a corrupt way. And if you sow to the Spirit, if you sow your life into spiritual things that are pleasing to God, you're going to reap things eternally that will be of great benefit to you. In fact, that doesn't say it strong enough. There's no way to compare the effort you have to make in serving God with the wonderful reward that will come as a result. Now, some people misinterpret this passage to be saying the same thing as karma, but it's not saying the same thing because karma is very specific While the law of sowing and reaping is general, it doesn't mean that you're going to reap in a specific sense. Every negative thought, every negative attitude, every negative action, every negative word that comes out of your mouth is going to have a consequence that is absolutely uh, uh, unavoidable. It's not saying that. The law of sowing and reaping is general. Generally speaking, if you do good things you're going to have a good life but it doesn't always work that way because life can have some unpredictable things happen in fact there's random things happen Jesus even gave the eight the attitudes and it starts off with all kinds of character uh, uh, he 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 it creates a scenario where you're developing character along this journey. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins, over their shortcomings, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger after righteousness. Blessed are uh, those who are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. All of these are wonderful, positive attributes. You would think, oh, what positive karma is being sown. And then he says in Beatitude number eight, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So he's saying if you develop all these godly traits, whoa, wait just a moment, you might get a backlash of persecution from it. So it's not always true that good things always follow good ways that you spend your life, good things you devote your life to, because sometimes evil has a way of counteracting that which is good. And I saw this on a website that was comparing karma and the law of sowing and reaping. And I like this. I like this observation. God keeps no record of sin, but karma does. Whether karma comes by way of a divine being or the universe, those who do not believe in a divine being, believe the universe just creates a cause and effect. The result is the same. Life will conspire to keep you mired in negative experiences until your moral balance begins to swing it the other way. And let me return to the first part of that quote. God keeps no record of sin, but karma does. In other words, if you repent, if you come to God, if you commit your life to God, he canceled it out. He said, their sin and their iniquities will I remember no more in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. So I believe that there are general rules of the way that we should live. For instance, in Luke 6, 38, Jesus said, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom with the same measure you meet or the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So yes, if you're a loving person, you'll tend to reap love from others. If you're a merciful person, you'll tend to reap mercifulness from others. There is a general kind of rule that you can expect to be fulfilled. But again, it's not tit for tat. It's not an exact replication of what you did coming back to you. And that's what the law of karma talks about. Proverbs 22 verse 8 says, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. And again, that's not tit for tat. That's not saying if I beat somebody up, I've got to be beat up. It just means if I live a violent life, I'm going to be a sorrowful, depressed, self-loathing kind of person. It's a general rule, not a specific rule. Well, I hope that has helped you. I hope that's resolved some issues in your mind. And probably from this point forward, when something bad happens, you're not going to say, oh, that's just my karma. (laughs) I hope you don't react that way because God is a higher power. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to visit the website, thetruelight.net, and download your free copy of The Highest Adventure the story of how I was converted from Eastern religions to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ.
1: Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global Internet family.